In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Emmy-winning composer Steve Bramson has translated his musical gifts to the big and small screen over the years across a variety of projects, including the hit CBS series JAG. His Disney connections span many decades, and most notably, he orchestrated classic Henry Selleck film, James and the Giant Peach, and composed the original theme for Disneyland Paris's Space Mountain, De la Terra a la Lune. On Notably Disney, we'll discuss all of this and more. Hi, Brett. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, as I do with many of my guests, I would love to hear a little bit about your musical origins. And I understand from some prior uh, interviews that you've shared that you actually grew up in a in a family that had a lot of musical proclivities and talents, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that and how you came into your own among those who actually share similar talents as yourself. Yeah, that's right. My parents were both musicians, both from the Midwest, that had gone east to study independently in New York City and connected there. My mother was an operatic soprano. She, uh, over her career, performed quite a lot in and around New York City. And my father was uh, studying clarinet at Juilliard, but decided to pursue uh, initially teaching in the public schools north of New York City, but then opened a business, uh, a music school and a music store that ran for 50 years. And um, so our music was always around the house. My father and mother performed music together independently, I, I would go to concerts, my, my sister and I, um, hearing recordings of music, rehearsals in the house, everything. So there was no escaping it. Um, and I was, uh, I certainly had my, my musical, uh, you know, uh, characteristics came out young, but I was not a uh, driven um, career directed musician as a young man. It took me a while to find my path there. 
I studied piano when I was quite young in my father's school with other teachers in a very traditional way, but I didn't really take to it. So I set it aside. Later, I took up trumpet when I was in high school and did pretty well with that. But by the time I, I reached high school, I'd become interested in jazz and started playing jazz piano and studying composition and arranging. And I abandoned the trumpet and, and stuck with that. I had a band I was uh, in with high school friends who wrote and performed their own music. Um, and that uh, stayed with me for many years, even after uh, high school and through college. Um, but when I was in college, I was not, as I mentioned earlier, I was not set on a career in music. I didn't really know if it's what I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up getting a degree in economics, which was something I was interested in as well. But I was always interested and involved in music in, um, in high school, playing in the, in the jazz ensemble and in my own bands around campus, et cetera. Um, I, when I graduated, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I had an economics degree, but no idea what that would mean for me. And uh, through a, a stroke of luck and coincidence, um, a famed jazz clarinetist named Buddy DeFranco was a guest at the final concert of our ensemble uh, my senior year and heard a piece that I had arranged and decided to, he offered to buy it from me. And this was a real kick of, of uh, confidence for me coming from someone like that and for a person who wasn't really directed yet towards music. So I decided that summer I would go to Eastman to the summer programs they were having there, which were kind of renowned and quite famous at that time in the mid and late eighties and uh, opened up a whole other world of, of music and musicianship that I hadn't seen before and kind of lit the fire that made me commit to a career in music. So I came to it a little bit later in that sense. I, I took a few years off to, uh, I, I discovered when I was there that summer that Eastman offered a master's program that I wanted to, to do, but I didn't qualify because I didn't have a music degree. So I had to do some catch up. So I, I took a few years to do that. And then I applied and got accepted and uh, did a master's degree at Eastman. Um, I'm threading the whole, whole story. So stop me if you want to. That's where I met Lawrence Rosenthal. Lawrence Rosenthal was an Eastman graduate and had come to Eastman uh, for, a, I think, an alumni weekend and spent a lot of time with us. Uh, I knew who he was. He'd become very interested in film music by that time. And by the time I graduated, I asked him if I could come out to California and just follow him around as a work study kind of thing. And that happened well, within about a year after I graduated, he called and I went out, spent uh, several months with him, working with him. And that was, uh, that was the, the nail in the coffin, so to speak. I mean, there was no turning back. Uh, I was very uh, excited and um, inspired by that experience. And after returning to New York, I decided within months that I wanted to move to California and, take a crack at the film music business. So I drove out and moved here. So there you go, a little snapshot. I was gonna say, it's almost like an elevator pitch of your whole uh, first part of your very, career in five very minutes. Very, pitch. Yes. very well done. Uh, it sounds like it was a circuitous path, but ultimately uh, you were able to tap into those um, talents that you had as a young age. You, you mentioned as a young adult that you uh, kind of shifted to jazz piano. What about that particularly appealed to you as well, a style? I think in looking back at it, probably the thing that really struck me the most was the harmony. The harmonies that were being used in jazz 
as composed of things that I had been exposed to and knew about classical music um, and the rhythms too, probably as well. And ultimately, you know, the improvisation, you know, that, that aspect of playing, uh, which is unique to jazz really. Um, but I, I really, you know, I remember when I was in, in high school, I, well, I was, must've been very young, elementary school actually. My father took me to a concert at a neighboring high school concert, a uh, band concert, and they played piece uh, called Bugler's Holiday by Leroy Anderson, really great piece. And that's when I turned to my father and said, I want to learn trumpet because it features these trumpets. But when I think about it, I don't think it was the trumpet that excited me. It was the harmonies because they're really rich and something about that just caught my ear. And so it kind of started with that. There was sort of this sort of innate react, you know, uh, kind of connection with that kind of sound. And that, that led me to, to delve deeper and deeper into jazz. And, you know, I played in a lot of ensembles but I never was a, you know, a first rate top tier pianist. I was good. And I knew not only was I not as skilled as my colleagues were who went on to have great careers in that way, but it wasn't really who I was either. I think the, the thing about jazz and the music was the writing, the arranging, the composing that really was, I didn't think I knew it maybe at the time, but that's really where I ended up headed. That's interesting. It sounds like you kind of found that that niche, so to speak, and that drove a lot of your future pursuits as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned prior to, to us recording that um, that you uh, very much know Joel McNeely, who was a recent guest on the podcast, and yes. you went to Eastman together. Is that correct? Yes, I think I was a year ahead of him. I think he came during my six, a two-year program. He came, I think, in my second year, but we overlapped. Yeah, he played on my graduate recital. And, uh, you know, I, uh, he played charts of mine in bands and stuff like that. We, we knew each other pretty well. Yeah. I, I imagine just given the, the caliber of folks who get to that point that uh, you, you're perhaps in that space where you recognize you're surrounded by very talented folks was... Were, were you in a spot where you were able to follow your colleagues' careers and what they ultimately ended up pursuing much in the same way with Joel? Well, you know, what's interesting is that at that time, you see, there was a, a professor there, Rayburn Wright, uh, that attracted ambitious and talented jazz composers and arrangers from all over the world at that time. The program was called Arrangers Holiday. It was very well known, very well attended, and it attracted immense talent. Not only did the school itself, in terms of the players that already were, in, you know, students there, uh, were already of a very high professional caliber, but the the other people who would come in for the summer programs and outside of Eastman per se were also very high. And this was the real eye opener opener to me. I I went to school at the University of New Hampshire, which is a, a terrific school and had a very good music department. But it just it you know the kind of students that would go there is very different than that were at Eastman. And so this is a real eye-opener. And because of the, the draw of Ray and also Manny Album at that time, Bill Dobbins too, um, a lot of the people that I went to school with and Joel went on to do really well. And a lot of them came out to California. A lot of the guys that Joel and I knew at that time in the early 80s moved to California. And we kind of came up together in a certain way, you know? 
uh, it's, and I can go through a whole bunch of names of people that I still, you know, I'm in touch with uh, that have done very well, that graduated around the same time that he and I did. It's kind of a golden era in a way. <laughs> yeah, I imagine to, to reflect back on that and, and realize that, uh, you know, kind of a, a special league of, of folks. Um, I do want to take one step back, um, although I am interested in hearing about how you entered um, the industry, as it were. Um, you had shared with me uh, when we were initially communicating that you participated as a member of the All-American Singers and Show Band at Walt Disney World uh, in the late 70s, so right after the resort debuted, um, as the pianist and in handling arrangements. Um, was, was this while you were in high school? No, this was in college. I think it that was college. Okay. I think it was between my junior and senior years. I believe it was the summer. I don't think they do it anymore. It was pretty well known program of all American singers and show band. It's the name I remember. And they had it both at Disney World and in Disneyland. And uh, in fact, a good friend of mine who was just also at school with me at UNH at the same summer went west when I went south from, from New York. Um, it was a lot of fun, you know, there's no question about it. Uh, um, and, and what was also nice about it, not, not, not just the experience of performing and, you know, making great connections with friends and all that, but they, they um, wove into it a kind of educational aspect to it. So they would have people from the entertainment and arts come and do master classes for all of us. I remember, um, I'm going to forget his name right now, but it'll come to me. But various uh, arrangers uh, came down, performers, uh, master classes. We had a, a session on arranging for big band and stuff like that. And so, you know, it was not just a great, like I said, great fun and, and experience performing, but there was an educational part of it too. Yeah. Oh, and that seems to honor the Disney notion of edutainment, right? There, that blend between education and entertainment in so many spaces. Yeah. Was, yeah I have a, go ahead. No, please, Steve. Well, I, have a, I have a lot of fond memories at that time, and I've stayed in touch with a couple of the guys that I roomed with and played with for many years. One of them went on to be a very successful doctor. Um, one of them uh, became a very uh, uh, respected judge uh, on the East Coast, but still plays bass, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it was you know, quite an opportunity, you know, for all the Disney geeks out there, you know, we, we got to go, you know, the famous underground, the tunnels, right. You know, that was a revelation to, to me. I didn't know that existed. I'd been to Disneyland here, but I didn't know. And so to, you know, go in there. And I think one day we had a chance to dress up as characters and went out and get that experience, all these kind of unique things. And uh, I also remember, uh, you know, having, the, the, the music we, we performed was half live, half recorded, so that we would stay synchronized all the time. Uh, we, the, the drummer would have a click count us off, so we would be in, in sync. It, it was a uh, you know, better audio you know, experience. Um, I remember once, they also had us on a float during the parade, and uh, summer, summer thunderstorms in Florida, right? And we're on, we're on the route, and the click is going, we're listening to it, and there's a lightning flash, and suddenly there's an extra click. And everyone gets out of sync. It was a total train wreck. 
and they sped us off the route and drove us off, <laughs> off the, uh, into the, you know, behind the scenes. It's pretty funny. Sounds like it must have been quite the cacophony during the thunderstorm. <laughs> it was. I don't know if anybody suspected anything. It happened rather quickly, but it's one of those memories that sticks with me. Yeah. For sure. And you said you handled some arrangements too. Is that right? Yeah, they they had it. They had a uh, uh, show. I there was a director that they had. I don't remember his name right now. Who chose the material? But I remember there was a medley of kind of famous t- TV hits. And I, I arranged, if not, I don't think I arranged all of them, but I did several of them. And then per, then we performed them. It was a medley. And I, there may have been one or two other things I did. By the way, the, the arranger I was thinking of was Frank Comstock. Frank Comstock was a great uh, composer arranger uh, back in the 50s and 60s. And he came down and gave us a master class. And by the way, that's where I started writing the arrangement that ultimately was played at UNH that got me connected to Buddy DeFranco was at Disney. So thank you, Disney. Really? Wow. Okay. That's an interesting thread line there. (laughs) You mentioned in your, during these formative years that you also had the opportunity to engage with some famous composers and and orchestrators. Did you have any musical idols growing up, whether they were singers or bands or folks more behind the scenes? Well, I mean, it's changed over the years. So uh, in no particular order, I mean, I, I remember as a, very, as a young teen being given a record by a teacher of mine at the time of the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra, which uh, any jazz people will know that name. Uh, but he was writing some very uh, outside of the box uh, sort of a, a enhanced version of Count Basie, but just so rich and harmonically. Again, that thing that I resonated so with, I really latched onto that. I, I listened to it the first time and I didn't, it was so unusual to me, but eventually it became something I really loved. I listened to quite a lot. That was a big influence for me. Um, you know, later on, I, w- I was a big fan of Bill Evans and his playing, jazz pianist and his writing. Uh, I... Um, when it came to, to uh, composers, I mean, just the names we always hear. I mean, W.C. Ravel, Stravinsky, people like that, of course. Um, film music, one of the early things that I used to listen to all the time was Almer Bernstein. Um, uh, Magnificent Seven was a favorite. Uh, later, of course, when John Williams was really busting out, you know, in the early scores. Um, you know, and of course, you know, as I came to work with Larry Rosenthal, his music too. Yeah, that was also a really wonderful experience working with him. Uh, uh, really getting to look deep inside his mind and creative process. And he, and he had some Broadway experience too. Yeah. Forget the name of the show that he wrote. Uh, I think it ran briefly. I don't think it ran. Well, actually, I'm not sure how long it ran. But I don't, I don't. I don't recall the name of it right now, but yes, he did. And of course he got an Oscar nomination for uh, the musical direction for um, Man of La Mancha, the film. Right. And that, and that would have been uh, before you were in college, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was before I met him. Yeah. Yeah, by the time I met him, he wasn't really doing uh, feature films quite as much. 
But at that time, uh, they were doing these very lengthy uh, historic miniseries of, you know, Mussolini, Peter the Great. I, there was certainly, he, he was sort of the go-to guy. That's really the meat and potatoes of what I did with him for these big epic miniseries. Many of them were recorded overseas. Uh, but you go back to listen to his earlier scores too. They're really, really great. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. I'm, you know, I guess I'm wondering through these experiences that gave you the opportunity to work with um, notable people and, and to refine your craft. How, how did that influence your ability to, to break into Hollywood? And I guess in concert with that, what, what do you feel are some of the qualities that you possessed that enabled you to set forth with that path? Well, you know, I'm speaking for myself, you know, my entry into a real career in Hollywood was a result of many different things going on. You know, one of them was working with Larry. Larry was a highly esteemed composer. And back then, particularly the music departments at studios, their executives in the music department were musicians, not as common today, or at least not with the same kind of skill and training as back then. And so when you mentioned you work with Lawrence Rosenthal, you know, it just immediately opened a lot of doors. So that that was one part of it. Um, I also had, you know, I remember when I came out here, uh, Silverado had just come out around then, and I loved that score. And I remember I called up Bruce Brown. I didn't know him, but I called him. And of course, I introduced myself and I'd been working with Larry. And again, that name is a big calling card. And invited to get together with me. And so he became aware of my, my work. Um, I also, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Joel had been established, uh, was already getting established and would call me from time to time to help out with this or that. So people were seeing me, they were hearing my music. So one instance, Joel gave me, he was doing a show called uh, Our House and it ran its course and he was moving on. And I got in to kind of write one of the last episodes and that gave me my first kind of full credit. And in another instance, uh, back in the day, I don't know that this happens much now, but a young composer would go knock on the door of all the music department executives at Fox and Warner Brothers or wherever and say, here's my tape and I'm looking for work. And they would listen to it and they would, you know, and one of the guys was a guy named Chuck Cassie who was working with Viacom and with uh, Dick Benedictus, who was doing, you know, Jake and the Fat Man and all these shows. And he had a young, he had a composer there named Joel Rosenbaum, who was one of their staples. Um, and Joel, he just said, look, if you ever get in the spot, call Steve, you know, and he get, he, Joel looked at my resume, saw Larry's name and said, that's it. I don't need any more information. And, you know, when he got in the spot, he, he called me to help out with a minute here, a minute there. And then eventually I got my own episodes to do over at Viacom. So it's kind of like, and then, and then, you know, the work with, with Larry, the work with, with Bruce, of course, you know, Bruce was instrumental in getting me involved in Tiny Tunes. Um, Bruce and Larry and another fellow I worked with, which we haven't mentioned, is David Shire. I don't know if you know that name, but David also a very wonderful composer. They all had the same agent. They were all with Gorfain Schwartz, which was a big agency. James Horner was there. John Williams was there. And that got me my first agent was you know, having that, you know, those people kind of behind me. So it's, it's, it's a, ma a number of things that kind of woven together that got me going. 
Yeah, it sounds like um, that was all really fruitful. And uh, you mentioned entering television and your work with Tiny Toons, and, and certainly uh, some of your most prolific work came in, in scoring for uh, 10 years on JAG, yeah. um, which is just impressive to, to be able to create so much work over such a long period of time. How do you make, I guess, reflecting on this, you know, all these years later, like, how do you process the fact that you were developing an orchestral score on a, on a weekly basis? And, and how did that influence your creativity when ultimately you're essentially working with the same um, characters and, and content, but in perhaps different situations? Well, it's a realization and a demonstration of, a, of something that, that you hear often in the creative world that... Um, there's, uh, there's uh, craft and talent. And uh, it, it shows that craft is the thing that gets you through. Because you can't, in my opinion, you can't produce that much music that quickly, purely on inspiration. You have to know how to work the material. And you know have to, when to say, this is good, and to move on. Because if you're constantly reworking and constantly looking for the perfect, you'll never get it done. So the craft, the fact that I, you know, any of us have done the study, done the work, put in the time to get those skills really refined enables you to work under that high pressure. I mean, when I look back on it, it's exhausting to think about it because it's a lot, it's a lot of work. I mean, Jag was, um, you know, 20, 25 minutes of music a week. And I typically had like five days to turn it around. That's a lot. And, uh, and it is for, for, you know, decent sized orchestra, 30, 35 people. And, um, you know, at various times of the years, I orchestrated a lot of it myself. Other times I had people helping me. In fact, I think the way I did it early on, I think I had people helping me, but later I did more myself, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but uh, yeah, it's quite an undertaking for any, any composer to do that. But incredibly, I'm very proud of it. Um, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons, just having endured it and come out the other side. But also creatively, I'm very proud of a lot of the music I did. Now, when you write that much music, you know, you're not going to love everything, but a lot of it. So I guess for perspective, if you're, you know, creating 20 minutes or so worth for each episode, and there were 219 episodes, that comes out to, you know, roughly 4,500 minutes at least of, of work that you created over the course of that decade the math because I, I wasn't sure yeah it's a lot i usually i usually think of it in hours so i have to divide by 60 when it's it's a lot it's a lot okay so there here's the answer 73 hours roughly roughly music. okay it's yeah, a lot did you find that that you're i don't know the, the ways in which you were arranging your scores changed as the series evolved? Well, I, I made it a task for myself to make every episode different. I wanted to, everything, to, I wanted to, every score to be like its own little independent score. Now, obviously there are themes that carry through the, the main theme, Bruce's theme, obviously one of them, but also I had developed some themes for characters and situations that I carried on. But, you know, I try to make everyone different. And, and sometimes that would just mean uh, 
tweaking, you know, in terms of the instrumentation, tweaking it a little bit, like I'd had a, maybe I remember one, one uh, story took place in Ireland. So I had a bodrum, the, you know, the, the, the hand drum and I had a, a penny whistle, you know, to the orchestra. Other times I would change the orchestra all the way around. I wouldn't use, you know, the, the typical ensemble, depending on what it was. Um, of course, the thing is that because um, the show was what it was, it was an adventure uh, show about the military, about a hero, uh, about air, you know, air, you know, the air force, et cetera. You really kind of had to have the brass around pretty much all the time. You know, because there's always, no matter what the show was, ultimately you had to end up with this kind of signature somewhere. So I never completely abandoned it, but I tried to look at every episode and find a way to make it unique and different. It worked sometimes, it didn't work all the time. Sounds like you had that uh, playground, so to speak, just to experiment, particularly as you're saying with, depending on where the location was or, or the theme of the episode. I also think it's a way to keep things fresh, to keep your to keep your eyes open, to keep awake, to keep moving. Because otherwise, it is just repetitive. Well, these are the same characters, and maybe the setting is different, but the story is just the same as here. So you have to find ways. I did to keep yourself, you know, motivated and to and to find uh, the thread that makes your music interesting. Yeah, it sounds like that, and. So I guess to segue to your Disney work, and I hadn't mentioned this at the top of the episode, but I, I was doing some um, reflecting of some other credits that you had for Disney, kind of a tie with the, the U.S. Navy, so to speak. You were responsible for scoring Tiger Cruise, the Disney yeah, original Disney Channel film? Right. Yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten. That was after JAG or, or you know, towards the end. Yeah, I mean, that to me, that was just sort of like, well, we need a guy to do the show about the military on an aircraft carrier. Well, Steve, you know, I think that's probably how that happened. Um, but yes, I did. That was that was a lot of fun. And that was um, that was a Bill Pullman, Hayden Panettiere film. Yes, that's right. I, I, I remember seeing that vividly. So it sounds like then just your you being ingrained as the as a military based composer. Uh, was a was a perfect fit <laughs> it's an example of what they call pigeonholing right i mean i was thinking you know, i'm not i'm saying this with love right it's okay but that is you know a lot of decisions are made that way you know we need we know what we need who can do the thing we need and what's what makes it the simplest and surest bet that we can get what we want well he's proved himself 200 episodes so pretty safe with this guy it's something like that and that you know that happens a lot in all aspects of production um so uh but i'm sure obviously they they like the music too yeah well, and i remember that film being kind of a dramatic almost like a dramatic turn for disney channel because it was focused on um 9-11 ultimately yeah, these folks on right. on the sh on the carrier and um the kids navigating what that looks like for them and their families so um, right. I remember it being a pretty impactful film, particularly it was only a few years after 9-11 um, yeah. unfolded. That's right. That's right. It's been a long time, so I don't remember the trajectory of the story that vividly, but um, but you're right. Well, and, and thinking about your, your body of work encompassing different spaces, if we were to go from sea to space, your work for Space Mountain is perhaps one of the I think, uh, mind the pun, Steve, like it's a stellar example of just really awesome 
composing that that is just so visceral. I haven't ex- I didn't have the chance to experience it um, when when it was uh, I haven't gone on it yet, and, and certainly it, it no longer plays in, in the current iteration. But for you know the first decade of Disneyland Paris um, with the attraction opening, it was a signature and. I guess I'm wondering because it's a it's a, just a brilliant piece of music, and I guess I'm wondering one how you got involved in the project, and two how you envisioned developing a score that would capture the historical and fantastical sentiment associated with Jules Verne. Well, um, the, the job came about, about in a pretty typical way. Uh, a call was made to agents, and agents uh, pitched certain individuals. Um, there were a pool of us that were offered a small bit of money to prepare a demo of a theme we would propose, and they chose the one they liked, I guess, and I was the lucky one. So that's how that happened. Um, the themes, I remember the theme changed a little bit from what I originally presented to them, which I ended up ultimately using, um, obviously with their okay. Um, but I mean, I've talked about this project many, many times. So your listeners may have heard these stories already, but it was, a, for me, a fascinating experience. I mean, but first to answer your question about trying to tailor the score to capture the, the story, I think that's you know, hopefully where my experience in, in scoring drama, which is what TV film writing is, translates. It's basically what they wanted to do. And as you know, it was the first ride that had a synchronized score. So the idea, you know, film music is synchronized to the picture. So that was sort of the idea. Um, so I, you know, I think I've always been a very visually sensitive person. A lot of times when I was, when I work on JAG and, and many, many productions, I really go to the visual to get my juices going. Uh, I respond to what I see or what I hear in a dialogue or something. I know I, I've heard people often will write from a script that they read uh, or maybe just get an idea in their head. I mean, I've done that, but I find that, um, you know, just experientially, that's pretty much how I've always created my work is starting from okay, you've got this thing, you know, now with the the ride, there wasn't a visual like that, but what there was, there was a really crude um, computer generated graphic of the ride. They attached a, I think a rabbit or something to the front of one of the cars and they filmed it going through the track and then they made this digital impression of kind of, you know, you could kind of see the ups and the downs and it kind of, uh, but there wasn't anything else to see, but they told me about it and I went over to Imagineering where they um, had, you know, drawings and models. So I could see it and they kind of walked me through it. And I think one of the reasons they wanted me to go there initially was to see it, you know, because they won't, they thought it would be important that I, you know, be in the space and see, you know, how big it was and what the different uh, elements were. And that was all very helpful for me to, you know, craft the score. But I mean, at the base, 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 simplest, simplest term, it's an adventure. So the music has to capture that quality without any question. It starts with that. And the launch sequence of the attraction is 
coincides obviously because of the notion of it being synchronized with a very exhilarating uh, motion in your score to really just ramp up the excitement. Well, that was very, yeah, because they have that catapult, which I guess was also a first. I mean, they told me all these things. I'm not a big roller coaster guy. I didn't really know much about this, but yeah. Um, the anticipation, the sense that the, the crank is it's cranked and you're just waiting to pull the trigger. Right? So that tension, right. Building the tension and the sense that you're being fired out of a cannon. I mean, that's what I was going for. Were there any challenges associated with knowing that you were only essentially working with a, a couple of minutes here, it, you know, very concentrated period? Um, no, I don't think so. I didn't, I haven't, no one's asked me that question, so I haven't really thought about it, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, obviously you, what you're getting at is you're compressing quite a lot into a short amount of time. I think the ride is just about two and a half minutes total. And there are a lot of changes that you have to go through. And, and I guess I would never really put it this way, but it's just now making me think of like the work I would do on tiny tunes because tiny tunes, you're shifting gears constantly. Run, 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 bonk, run, 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 beep, bump, bump, whatever it is. You're in the music to an extent is trying to capture everything. And that's very compressed. And you need to do it in a way that's still musical and not just like you're just throwing this and throwing that and that. So perhaps I, again, I never thought of it this way, but um, it, it, you know, it wasn't, I guess in some ways it was more freeing because it, the, the changes weren't that fast. But, um, you know, one of the challenges was to craft a score that, you know, captured the mood, the energy uh, that you wanted to, but also caught the changes that you wanted to experience as you went through the ride, but do it again in a musical way. So it wasn't jarring and things didn't feel like they didn't connect one to the next. And that, that was a challenge. But then again, uh, I did a mock-up on synthesizers and then I went to Paris and with it and we tested it to see would it work? Did it work? So that was very helpful too. Did you ultimately ride it once it was open? Not till many years later. Really? Because when I, I went, the first time I went was to see the ride experience, talk to the engineers about how it would work to kind of time. I had actually rode this roller coaster. I don't know. seems like 12, 20 times with a stopwatch. You know, they, we talked about, you know, where the music would need to change because they had switches, you know, that would trigger when the music would move on. And um, so I did that. And then once I got that information and then I went back a second time with the, the synth test, that was it. I came back, we recorded with the orchestra and I gave it to them and I never went back until many years later, uh, we were visiting France and decided to go. It was still, and it was early enough, so it was still there. It was before they changed it over. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you had the opportunity to experience it. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, as I mentioned, I, I haven't written it um, myself, but certainly I'm familiar with the music and, and I've heard it actually in the parks, in the domestic parks, they've utilized it as you perhaps yeah. recognize too, um, which is nice. I, I love the sentiment that music can be employed in even as background music in, in different contexts. Yeah. But as, as a listener, Steve, I must ask, listening to certain moments of it, um, it echoes to me 
elements of John Williams' ET. Is is that intentional? And and I, and mind it's, you, I say that as a compliment, but it's, well, it's both. Um, it's you know, you know, there's no escaping the fact that this was a, much of the conversation when I was given the job. You know, references made to those that music. Um, and it's kind of like the elephant in the room, you know, you, you kind of can't escape it. Um, and I knew they wanted something that was of that ilk, you know, that's what they wanted for that ride. Now I know they changed it later and I haven't seen it or heard it, but that's something different, but this was supposed to be a la Star Wars, ET, all, all that stuff. Um, but there wasn't, uh, you know, I don't think there was like a conscious, you know, I'm going to reference something specifically. If it happened, it happened sort of organically, just as I, as I just described, you know, just kind of channeling and kind of getting into the, the, the style that, that I knew they were asking of me. Um, and there's certain orchestrational tricks that he's made his forever. So if we use them, there's just no escaping that, you know, it will, it will, you know, you'll have that association, but I, I have a great deal of respect for, for, you know, he creates, well, I mean, you can go back and say, well, who, who inspired John Williams, but we'll save that for another time. But, you know, he, he invented this kind of space opera music, you know, with George Lucas and um, there's just no really escaping that. Um, I think, uh, Obviously, there's wonderful scores since then that, you know, company movies taking place in space that have nothing to do with that. But it's a very specific kind of a story, a very specific way of telling a story uh, where that kind of music really works. I, I, I as I mentioned earlier, I, I absolutely love the, the, the theme, the, the piece of music used for it. And, and even though there are elements that I feel are illustrative of other composers qualities like John Williams. It also has, you know, a very distinct vibe and ultimately, uh, and I've, and I've seen the video, you, you conducted this for the Hollywood and Vienna concert. I didn't conduct it. They, oh, conduct. they, did, they did play it though. Okay. Uh, they did play it. Um, and uh, I was there, but no, I did not conduct it. Okay, my apologies. No, no, that's okay. That was uh, also special because just by coincidence, James Horner was the guest that that summer. That's right. Uh, fall, I guess. And I had worked with him on a couple movies. I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in many years. But that so there was sort of a nice kind of a uh, coincidence that we ended up being there that day. So, what was your experience then in watching? this piece of music you had composed years earlier being performed in a very notable, prestigious venue? Well, it was an honor and it was a thrill. I mean, um, and David Newman, I, I knew also, he's, he's the one who conducted it. Um, so again, uh, it was really special. I mean, reuniting with James Warner, David Newman, who I knew, and, and of course, my own experience of being there in this incredible city with, you know, you know gobs of musical history, uh, having my piece performed live on national television, 
uh, with a really fine, I think it was the radio orchestra uh, uh, that performed in the national, I don't, I'm not sure which ensemble. It was exciting. And after many years, you know, hearing it again, you know, apart from my own recording, I thought they did a great job. Yeah, it was a really, uh, it's a really special, special experience. And I know in watching it, because folks can can see it on on YouTube and and, and in other spaces, that the the visuals uh, kind of echo that that space sentiment, which I, I think is a, a nice complement to um, certainly that you know the the vibe of the the score, which was ultimately originally played in uh, Space Mountain. So yeah. I'm wondering um, if we can can shift a little bit to um, one of your your projects for Disney, uh, a different one, but a film project, James and the Giant Peach, um, which was it it wasn't a huge box office hit per se, but it was certainly beloved for many kids and and folks of who went to the movies in the '90s. You know, is that that notion of of seeing Henry Selleck's work, who worked with Tim Burton and yeah. and colleagues. You got to work with Randy Newman, yeah. um, one of one of the greats, and we talked about jazz music earlier. And certainly, yeah. he is forever associated with that. Can you talk about your experience in, in working with Randy Newman and and making this what I believe to be one of his finest scores, and and well, yours too? <laughs> well, it's it's Randy's music. I mean, uh, I was great. Randy's a terrific guy. I really. I admire him a lot, both as a musician, but also as a person. It was really, really great to work with. Very generous, uh, affable guy. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think he just, uh, he has such a unique voice and he really found such a clever way of scoring that such a quirky movie and story, you know, between Roald Dahl and Henry Selleck. Uh, together, uh, you know, you just get this really otherworldly thing. And Randy really, you know, found his way into that, I thought. Um, you know, it was pretty boilerplate the way we worked. I mean, like anybody else, you know, I would. Well, I mean, one thing I do remember is I, he took me to the spotting session, which was up in, I think, Selig Studio was in, was it in Washington or Bay Area. I don't remember. Somewhere up north on the West coast. And I went up with him to the spotting session, which for those of you who don't know is where you sit with the director and you decide where music does and doesn't go. And so, um, that, you know, that, that was great to do that. I don't typically go to spotting sessions with composers when I've orchestrated for them. Um, and, uh, but it, I think it's advantageous, um, for the orchestrator. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, he would do his work and when he had something ready, I would go over to his house and he'd play it through for me on the piano and we'd talk about it. And I'd look at the score, I'd make suggestions, I'd ask him to clarify things he was looking for. And then I would just go take it home and, and do my work. Um, you know, Randy, you know, he's a, you know, we, the world knows him so much well, early on as a songwriter, but he's a very skilled composer. You know, he's, he knows, he knows, classical music, concert music, he knows orchestration, he knows the orchestra. And so a lot of the information was in his sketch. But of course, you know, I mean, I can't think literally, but I know that uh, things that I added to enhance, I did that, of course, that's what an orchestrator does. Um, and, uh, 
but I, you know, one of the things that sticks out in my mind is the bass saxophone for the, uh, I don't, the sister or the, the, the sisters. I don't remember the story that well. But the ants? Oh, it's the ants. Yeah. This on the bass, because the bass saxophone is just this sort of unwieldy sounding kind of chugs along in an almost comical way. And he used it. It was just a brilliant idea uh, for them. Uh, and it has this sort of menacing, uh, but also kind of comedic quality that really suited them so well. It was really brilliant. Um, and um, I mean, there is, there's not a whole lot more I can say about it other than uh, it was, you know, a real pleasure working with him. I enjoyed, I enjoyed him as a person. I enjoyed the music. Um, and I think it was a terrific score. Yeah. And when I say ants, I should clarify, I mean aunts, not ants, because there are a lot of insect characters. So pronunciation for that. But uh, I, I'm wondering, Steve, you know, given that Randy Newman utilizes a lot of jazz and, and a lot of waltz, too, it seemed like that was an opportunity to kind of um, to lean into that that quirkiness, that playfulness with with the score that didn't necessarily, um, you know, follow a, a linear fashion. There was also some uh, uh, instrumental versions of songs like My Name is James woven into the right. score as well. Yes, that's right, which he wrote. Uh-huh. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, you're bringing a lot of this back to my mind. I haven't seen that movie in so long. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. What is that experience for, for you? I know we talked about this a few minutes ago with Hollywood in Vienna to, to hear your music being played in that context, but, but to know that the orchestrations that you've contributed ultimately land in a theatrical film like this, and I know you have many other credits to your name as well. How do you process that on the other side of it when you're no longer in the space where you're crafting it? Um. It's a kind of a pride, basically, to, to be able to say I had a part in that. And I feel the same way when I see Apollo 13, you know, which has become a classic. And my name is on there as an orchestrator just to be a part of that. You know, uh, that was an early part, earlier part of my career. And, you know, I'm very grateful to have had the experience to work with James. And, uh, and I've been lucky. I mean, look, the three movies that I think of that I because I didn't do a lot of orchestrating. I mean, except I did, you know, actually worked for Larry for many years. I did a lot of TV stuff with, with um, David Shire, but the movies I did, I only did like three or four that I orchestrated and they're all memorable kind of classic or cult movies. You know, you've, you've got Apollo 13, uh, you know, James and the Giant Peach in its own quirky way and Starship Troopers, you know, which is another one that's sort of uh, more of a, I guess, more of a cult classic. But, um, you know, so I feel kind of pride and uh, fortunate to have had these experiences, you know, uh, and uh, it's a tickle to see your name come up uh, on some of these projects. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, Apollo 13 as well, which ultimately is an amazing picture and, yeah. um, and garnered so many awards. Both Apollo 13 and James and the Giant Peach were nominated for Best Original Score at the Oscars for, you know, uh, James Horner and Randy Newman, respectively. Um, so to know that you had such an instrumental hand in that, yeah. boy. Oh, I feel very fortunate. Um, it's, a, you know, obviously, I, around that time, I probably had my dates wrong, but that's not very far off from the time I think I started working on JAG. And I wanted to be a composer. 
I didn't want to be an orchestrator for other people as much as I, you know, did my best in the work and uh, I appreciate the work. So I wanted to separate myself. And eventually I started to say no to some of, you know, to do more orchestrating. Uh, so um, I, I, I think it was, uh, it was a great experience on so many levels, you know, the experience, the, the, I've learned a lot from all, everyone I've worked with, I've learned a lot. It's quite a body of work. And I recognize um, that, you know, we've talked a lot about the past. Are there, are there any recent efforts that you're working on or, or projects that are, are getting you excited? Well, um, I, I haven't been, terribly busy in the film scoring uh, world. Although I, you know, my last movie uh, been out now for a couple of years, I was proud to have won a best score award for at uh, a festival in Spain a couple of years ago, a movie about Dylan Thomas. I'm very proud of the music. Um, I uh, am in talks with the director to do his next movie. So that may happen any, I think this summer or fall, I'm not sure. So there's that. But I'm also working on, a, I've written um, something of my own, uh, opera musical uh, based on the life of a, of a prominent 20th century photographer that I'm in the process of getting produced, working on. And that's been very, uh, just a completely different thing. I'm really enjoying it, you know, as much as I love the scoring work and I love, I mean, for me, the whole thing about this work is the storytelling. I love the idea of contributing to storytelling. I like to try to convey that through the music. Um, but in production, as great as it is, you, you have so many people you need to answer to. There's so many people who have a hand in what you do and what you deliver and have to sign off on. And you can do that. But on this project, it's just me and my writing partner, the librettist. And it's a chance to explore a part of creativity and writing that I haven't in a long, long time. Uh, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But that's storytelling, too. So it's all connected. Sounds like it's a fruitful passion project. Well, as we wrap up, I'd love to ask you a, a few of the common Disney opinion related questions that I pose to my guests um, and these relate to music um, and if you don't have an answer for for them that's totally fine but um, I'll, I'll ask you these uh, anyways uh, is there a Disney soundtrack that you listen to most while growing up um, not currently and uh, and I can't even say in the past I I there may have been, but I've never thought of it as a Disney soundtrack per se. Um, so I guess my answer is no. Okay, that's quite all right. Um, th this question may also be in that same territory, but um, I'll ask it too. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Huh. Boy, well, I should say one of the recent, you know, from one of the recent animated films, but my son is old enough now that we don't watch them anymore. So I, and I haven't seen them. So uh, I, nothing lately, you know, uh, I can't, I, again, I, I draw a blank. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, we'll, we'll see if third time is the charm with coming up with an answer. So is there a Disney film that you feel has the most underrated music? 
So whether it be the songs or the score, but that just doesn't get much attention. Well, again, I can't, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I would have to, because I'm sure the movies I'm thinking of that I don't even know what studio produced them. So, uh, I, again, I'm sorry. Third time is not the charm. It's okay. Your best Disney guest. Oh, that's quite all right, Steve. No, 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 you're totally fine. I mean, I was going to say you could throw out some movies and I can tell you if they're Disney films or not, but. Um... Yeah. No, I don't. Nothing comes immediately to mind. Um, yeah, I'm drawing a blank line. All good. I, I will say, I mean, I, you know, people don't talk about James and the Giant Peach very much, but it really does have great songs and, and the score yeah. is fabulous. So, yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, I, I actually have the sheet music for it, and I occasionally play it on the piano myself. So, oh, good. yeah, yeah. But they didn't release the score, so that's. Uh, <laughs> oh, you mean it printed? Printed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there is a guy that is that is doing scores and, and putting them out, but uh, but I don't think that's on their list. But you could always ask. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to. I'd be interested in inquiring. Okay, let, so the last question. So this is a random question. So this is always different for every Disney or for every guest on the podcast. Um, if you could live in the world of a Disney movie for a day, what would it be and why? <laughs> so maybe think back to an animated film that you watched or something like that, if that triggers a thought. Gosh, I mean, my, my Disney library, just I can't. I can't think of, you know, the only Disney movie I'm thinking of right now, and I don't really have any association with it, is Tron. Oh, okay. And I don't, and I think, I mean, this is really neither here nor there, but there's a, there's a, a connection through my wife's family to a fellow who was involved in the creation of that movie. And I think it's been on my mind lately. Um, but that's as far as it goes. I mean, um, I, I don't have any, uh, personal experience with it that, that I'm, I'm thinking of. Um, so again, I don't really have a specific answer for you. Sorry to be a disappointment. Not a disappointment, but uh, I, I think Tron would be a cool world to live in. Well, but yeah, I mean, if you think about any movie, because isn't, isn't that actually kind of what happens? They get uh, yeah. into the movie. So suppose it's perfect in that sense. Yeah. And, and the score, I, I, I must admit, I'm not a huge fan of the original film, the sequel I enjoyed more, but the score for the original, Wendy Carlos was right. the composer. Is that fantastic? So that, I remember listening to an album of Wendy Carlos way back when, a pioneer in synthetic music. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also a pioneer for, for women composers as well. Yeah. Formerly Walter Carlos, for those who don't know. And I guess I'm wondering, uh, finally, how can listeners follow your work? Well, I have uh, my website, stevebramsonmusic.com. And you can actually listen to some of these things on there. Uh, not the orchestrated stuff, but uh, those, of course, you can find on the composer sites. Um, and there will be a site soon for this uh, opera a musical that I'm working on. Uh, and we already have it, but it's not live yet. Uh, we're keeping it sort of uh, private at the moment. 
but uh, yeah, my website and I have a Facebook page. People can search me out there and friend request and all that. Um, th those would be the best bets. Great. Well, thank you for taking a trip down memory lane uh, with me, Steve. Uh, it was a pleasure to learn more about your background and your contributions to Disney and, and some exciting uh, endeavors on the horizon for you, too. Thank you. Great talking to you, Brett. And thank you again to Steve Bramson for joining me on Notably Disney. You know, I say it time and time again how much of a thrill it is for me as just a Disney connoisseur and podcaster to speak with the creators, the individuals who have composed music or written books that have been meaningful uh, in my life in terms of just the entertainment and providing a sense of pleasure. And Steve's work for James of the Giant Peach and, and many more endeavors have certainly contributed to that. So it is always a pleasure when I get to be able to have 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and a half of someone's time to be able to explore more about their career, uncover stories that perhaps haven't been captured in other spaces, and to create that avenue for individuals to think back to a time when they were developing uh, any of those particular projects. So thank you, Steve, and thank you for listening. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. 